I'd like to read Romans 8, 18 to 37. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature, of the creation, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains until now. Not only that, we also have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is not is seen is not hope. For why do you still hope for what we already have? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for, as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints, according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how, can, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? If Christ, who died and furthermore is also risen, even to the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'd like to turn you to Job. I'd like to read chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2. Then I'd like to turn you to chapter 42 and read the first seven or eight verses of that chapter. Job, chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. And also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. 
And so it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where do you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up back and forth in it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on, on, on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and his household, around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions, and have incre- which have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he'll surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans raided and took them all away. Indeed, they killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and they killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came also and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from, the, across, from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are all dead. And I alone escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, shaved his head, tore his robe, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin with his mouth or charge anything with God or charge God with wrong. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord again. And Satan came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, though you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. That far from the first two chapters. And then from chapter 42. This, of course, is at the end of all of the story. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you? You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things beyond my comprehension which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. That's what you said. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. 
Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so it was when the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliaphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job did. The beginning of the story, the end of the story. The book of Job refers to a time before Abraham, though he is not mentioned in any of the genealogies, Old Testament or New Testament. As nearly we can understand it, it would come after the flood and before Abraham. But that's only the setting. There's no history to back it up. The greatest man of the East is probably the only clue we have. That would put him somewhere on the east side of Babylon, maybe down into Persia. There's no history to bring to back that up as to when it might be. He's the greatest of the men in the east who was upright in faith, served God, and shunned evil. Is it history? Is it poetry? Is it a sermon? God uses all three to proclaim his position and to to us and that he uses Job as an example. I will use it as a sign. Calvin preached 159 sermons on Job, one a day for a year and some, uh, and uh, I promise I won't preach that long. Uh, the present predecessor to John Owen in his church in England preached uh, on Job for 23 years. I won't be that long either. Satan appears here in chapters 1 and 2, and then again in Psalm 109, and then again in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He's the servant in Genesis 3, the serpent in Genesis 3. Otherwise, he's not mentioned. He's not mentioned until the New Testament. We don't know what people knew about him. We don't know where this comes from. We don't know exactly when the book is written or who wrote it. That's why I said we don't know if it's history. We don't know if it's a sermon. We don't know if it's lore. We don't know what it is. But God included it in the scripture. And I think there's a reason for it, I'm sure. Among the sons of God, I'll take a minute with that one. Sons of God are angels. Therefore, the angels were created before men, according to Genesis 3. But angels are not of this creation. They're in a different realm, different cosmos than we are in some way. They're in our world when they're sent. Otherwise, they're in God's presence, which is not in this world. Angels are not of this creation. So at their time, their age, their nation, and physical, we know nothing. The only thing we know is that Satan is called the son of the morning, which implies that he was the first of the things that God created. Their properties are not like ours. Even they are not noted. Even, even, excuse me, therefore they are not noted in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. This sermon will be essentially topical rather than serial. I'm going to try to explain to you all of the book of Job. What I want to look at is a brief overview 
So I have four points I want to make with that. Number one, is Job without sin? If he is, why has God blessed him? If he is not, why has God blessed him? Number two, is God persecuting Job? Why does he take it all away? And then you can enter Eliaphas and Bildad and so far and go from chapter 4 to chapter 36. Three, is God disciplining a sin in Job's mind? Enter Elihu in chapter 36 to 38. And then in chapter 42, verses 1 to 8, what is God doing to Job? Or perhaps more accurately, what is God doing with Job? So, let's take a minute and look at the first five verses. Job's character. He fears God and he shuns evil. Uh, That would make him pretty good. In fact, there's only one guy in Scripture we could say who's a human being alone. That would be of his caliber. And that's Enoch, who walked with God and God took him and wouldn't take him through death. We could look at Elijah and we could say, well, God took Elijah that way too, but we know about Elijah's sins. We can read about that. He went with God's mercy. Satan? Well, Satan is attacking Job's character before God. Now, I'm going to take a moment and just ask this. Do you realize that Satan has no free will? Satan can only do what God gives him permission to do. It's not that he's not allowed to do everything that he wants to do. It's that he physically can't. God has that kind of power over him. Just like he does about us. Okay. God does use angels in our world. If you turn to 1 Kings chapter 22 and read there about the uh, scene in heaven where God is saying to the angels, what shall I do to, uh, to discipline Ahab or to, to convince Ahab to go out to battle? And one of the angels finally steps forward and said, I can do it. God says, how are you going to do it? I'm going to become a lying spirit in the mouths of his prophets. So God can use angels to do what he wants. And while angels can sin, sometimes what angels do isn't sin, but God's instruction. God asks Satan, what are you doing? Job is sinless as far as men are concerned. Maybe Enoch is the only one we could look at and say that. Does Job God fear for nothing is what Satan says to God. He serves me, he loves me, he worships me, he does everything I ask. Can you have you considered such a man? And what kind of faith he has and what kind of wonderful things he's doing? Satan says, Does Job serve God for nothing? If I can put it into more contemporary words, take a look for a minute. You bribed him to this. Everything he does turns to gold. His herds get bigger. His family gets bigger. His property gets bigger. His reputation gets bigger. Everything he touches you've made turn to gold. Who wouldn't serve you for that? God says to Satan, "Hmm." everything he has. Satan said, see if you take everything away, we can prove this. 
God says, okay, you can take everything away, but you may not touch his person. And so he does. He takes it away. There was a day, you read about what happened on that day, when all of Satan's work to take away everything of Job's happened. And Job rose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will go back. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. Job looked at this, what Satan had done, and God had said, in effect, not only can God do what he wants, but everything that God does is good. That's why we read from Romans chapter 8. Everything God's, God does, he has the right to do. And since God is good, everything God does is good. Peter tells us in chapter 5, Be sober and vigilant and resist the devil, your adversary, and he will flee from you. Well, Job's adversary doesn't flee quite yet. He comes back and he says to God, Okay, I was wrong. But you've still given him his health and he has that and a man will trade anything for being healthy. Uh, If you take that away, he'll curse you to your face for sure. God says you can take all of his health away. You just can't heal him. Back in our minds, with what God does to Job, death would be a relief. So Satan takes it away. And when he does, Job sits down in the, literally in the garbage dump and he says, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. He says it to his wife this way. She says to him, you speak as a... She says, she says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? To say, to praising God? Curse God and die. He said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Enter Job's three friends. Well, I'm not sure friends is the right word. Chapter 2, toward the end of it. Now Job's three friends heard of this adversity that had come upon him. And each one came from his own place. Eliaphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, Eliphaz, excuse me, uh, and the, the Zophar the Naamathite. And they made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised his, their eyes from far off and did not recognize him, they lifted up their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. And they sat down with him on the ground. And seven days and seven nights no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was great. One current, the alive commentator says that was the best thing they did. They were silent for a week. Everything else they did only makes it worse. In fact, everything they did after that, everything they did after that reveals their sin. And they're accusing Job of sin. Chapter 3 is a little bit of a parenthesis. Here Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. 
May the day perish which I was born and the night in which it was said a male child was conceived. May that day be darkness and may God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it and blackness of the day terrify it. What did Job do here? He said all good things. And then the man who has not sinned and not charged God with sin, the man of God goes into a depression. And in depression, he doesn't rejoice in what God has done. Job's revealing what his sin is. It's going to take a long time in the book to get to what his sin is. And God's going to get to it in a way that's a little different than we would expect. His sin is that he looks at God and he says, uh, God has to do great good things to good people. And I'm a good people. And God didn't do good things to me. So there must be something wrong. I don't know what the wrong is. Since I don't know what the wrong is and I can't be comforted, just let me go. Let me get out of this. And then the friends, quote-unquote, start to speak. But I want you to look at that for a moment. Even a godly man falls into despair and depression. It's a common sin. It's the sin of the mind more often than the sin of the actions. Just because you're depressed doesn't mean you go and jump in front of a train. But you might. Usually you just sit there and are glum. And the thing that doesn't happen is God isn't praised by your life and by your ways. You didn't do anything else. You just failed to do something. And so Job is demonstrating that he has a view of God and his view of God is in the words of the commentators, too small. We'll go into that a little later. The three of them then answer, and they answer, and over and over and over from chapter 4 to chapter 32, uh, this is the way they answer it. It can't be that you haven't sinned. The reason all this happened has to be because you sinned. God is just, and God can only do good things to good people and bad things to bad people and if God's doing bad things to you you must be bad people just because we don't see it must be it's somewhere there and so they're going to spend those chapters challenging Job and Job is going to say but I didn't do any of those things he protests I didn't do anything of those things of the things sins you're claiming I did and saying God is just is getting after you because of those things I didn't do them they postulate that God's justice demands retribution. And the retribution is the bad things that happen to you. And so God's retribution on you must mean that you sinned. It's painful suffering. It appears to be a painful, bad action on God's part, if Job is right. But Job had said God doesn't sin. So here's Job's confusion. His friends aren't confused at all. They're just wrong. They're saying that if God's doing these things to you, it has to be because you sin. And we can look at that, and we think that happens the case most of the time too. Uh, If, for example, you get yourself good loaded, and you go out, and you drive your car, and you hit a tree, uh, and the car is completely destroyed, uh, it's your fault. 
you did it, and the retribution was God destroyed your car. And maybe you. If you do that, then we can say, yeah. See, this retribution is there, and it's clear. That's what Job's friends are doing. They're looking at somebody's life, and they're saying, because God does this to you, this must be the reason. Because God's too small in their minds to do anything else. God can't have another purpose in mind for this. So over and over again in those chapters, you must have done something sinful. And they keep going through different ideas of what it might be. And Job says, but I didn't do those things. And I didn't do those things. And I didn't do those things. And they keep saying, you must have. You're lying. You're lying to yourself, if nothing else. You don't know what's going on. You don't see how the justice of God is intended to bring you to retrib- bring rep- retribution on you so that you will be driven to repentance and we're here to help you get that repentance so we're going to challenge you and chase you to get to, to where your sin is. We want to find out what that sin is so we can get you to repent so that you can get back to where you were. I guess we first have to ask what is missing? Is God just? Absolutely. Completely. Totally. Is God merciful? Absolutely. Completely. Totally. How many times can you be two contradictory things at the same time? Even if you're schizophrenic, you have to be one at a time. How can it possibly be? The problem the three men have and they're trying to get Job to see is that God isn't as big as the Bible says he is. God can only be one thing at a time. You think that's not being said in our world at all today? Is God three in one? Or is God just a God who has three different hats? So in one day he wears one hat, another day he wears another hat, Maybe in one instance he wears a hat and a different hat. He's got three of them. Okay? There's the Father who's just. There's the Son who's merciful. There's the Holy Spirit who works in you. Does God have three hats? Are there any ones you know who can actually be three different people at the same time? Even the schizophrenic can't do that. So what is that telling us? It's impossible for people to be. And we say God has to be just like us. At least in some senses, God has to be just like us. After all, He made us. We were made in His image. So God has to be just like us. Well, yeah, He made us in His image in some ways. But He didn't give us the ability to create, uh, in spite of what Joseph Smith said. Uh, he said that uh, Jehovah was actually born on Caleb and that uh, Jehovah was so good that God uh, allowed him to create universes of his own. And that's what we are. Anyway, but we keep saying things like that. And by the way, the Mormons are growing. Because we want to think that. We want to think that somebody can get to that point where he can do great things 
because we don't like the limits we have on us. So we want those limits to be removed. And, and God could remove them. If God could remove them, maybe he could make us like him. And then we wouldn't have them. So the three have been insisting to Job that what you're getting is what you deserve. You're trying to do these things. You're trying to, to do these, these things. You get away with them. And God says, no, I'm going to catch you. And I'm going to bring you to rip to I'm going to bring you before the portal. In chapter 19, verse 3, Job says, But I know that my Redeemer lives, and he, that he will stand on the earth, and in that day he will take care of this. Part of J. Clark translation, that part. The reason it's here is that we translate that word Redeemer, and the word in Hebrew is Mediator. What Job is saying is, I know that someday someone is going to be able to explain this to me. And he'll stand on the earth and I'll see him and I'll recognize him and I'll know it and I'll know what he's saying and I'll know it's right. But until then, I don't know what's going on. And his three friends go after him on that too. Job says, chapter 21, God, Job, excuse me, God blesses the wicked but persecutes me. Psalm 73, he said, uh, I was envious of the wicked because of the emptiness of the boastful because when I saw what God did to them, they were prosperous and at peace and they didn't suffer. God says, I don't understand because God's persecuting me. God's picking on me. And so Job protests this before God. After Bildad has said, no man can be righteous before God, which is true. But it's not the point here. The point is, Job didn't do the things they're accusing of. Job was being blaming, Job was being blamed for what he hadn't done. And now Job is starting to say, something's wrong here because God's doing to me what he shouldn't be doing to the bad people, and I'm not one of the bad people. And in that sense, God has already declared that Job's right. He's not one of the bad people. So enter Elihu, chapter 36. God is disciplining Job's sin in his mind. So we have for part three. A sin in Job's mind or a sin of God in Job's mind. It's possible to think things and not do them. And if I'm only thinking them, you don't know that I'm not doing them. You don't know that I'm thinking of them, unless you can read minds, which God is excellent at, but not the rest of us. Uh, You can't know what I'm thinking. And what I'm thinking can be sinful, and God can be saying, I'm going to discipline you for what you're thinking. And Elihu keeps saying that. That's Elihu's point. Job hasn't done these things, but he's thinking them, and God considers that just as bad as doing them. So, he's saying that God's actions have got to be righteous and just. And so, even if Job's actions are righteous and just, his, just his attitude has to be self-righteousness. I'm good. God has to do good things to me. I want to take a minute 
go back just for a moment to what we talked about in Sunday school there. Oh, that begs the question of whether we are sinful, totally depraved. That we can do good things and think good things and still be wrong because our sin gets in the way. How many men do you know who will stand in the pulpit and who will say to you, this is what God's word says and be right and then expect you to do what the Dutch used to do many years ago and expect that you would greet him at the door, Domini, that you would bow before. Domini, I believe, is a Latin perversion for something between king and pope. They want the, the, they want the uh, clause. You see a man who gets his doctor of ministry degree. He's strutting his degrees. Something wrong. Job says, but I didn't do that. Elihu's point, however, is that God is righteous and God knows that and God can't do bad things to bad people. He's still got that small God. God has to do good things to good people because that's God's nature. He has to do bad things to bad people because that's God's nature and he can't do bad things to good people because that's God's nature. The three think that God cannot be harsh without sin. He cannot test to see if it is sin. He cannot uh, rise above all and uh, be merciful. Once sin is involved, he has to do it. He has to punish it. Elihu says that God can do these things if Job is unrighteous. And Job is insisting that he is not unrighteous then you have to go back and say that what Job is doing is he's calling God to account. Elihu's getting ready to do that. And in fact, when Elihu finally does be quiet, Job's recognizing he's guilty of this. He's demanding that God give him an answer. Oh, that he would come and talk to me. Oh, that he would put aside his, his great glory and all that and he'd make himself like me so we can sit down and talk and I can understand this. Job has demanded an answer. He wants to know what he's done wrong. You can do this to others. You can be bad to, to, to others. You can be discipline them. You can be good to others who need to be disciplined and not discipline them. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you picking on me? I suppose that I should say to you what we've been saying in Cedar Grove and in our own homes. When pain comes... Death, loss of money, loss of memory, loss of friends, loss of ability, injury, accident, not enough rain for the crops. And we ask, why? We want to find out and get an answer. We want God to to do these things. So he does something to me and I didn't think I deserved it. I was driving, I wasn't drunk. The other person was drunk. He wrecked my car. How come I'm in the hospital with this injury? What happened? Is this something that's out of God's control? Or is there something there? We don't want to... We ask why. We don't want to to find or get an answer. We do want to find or get an answer. I suppose I should 
tell you right now that I can't give you an answer. If you want me to know why you have this injury or why you lost your money in the stock market, if you want to know why these things, I can't give you an answer. A commentator that I read and I enjoyed very much said, I do have an answer. I don't know. He said, no, that's not the real answer. The real answer is it's for God's glory alone. Which brings this to number four. What is God doing to Job? He's disciplining Job. No, he's not disciplining Job. He's persecuting Job. No, he's not persecuting Job. He's doing something that Job doesn't understand. And I suspect that most of us don't understand it either. Okay? So I'm going to take a little bit of what... Uh, of what Elihu says, or what God says, rather, in chapter 40. And I'm going to ask you a few questions. What is behemoth? Well, the best commentators think he's a hippo. What can you do with a hippo? Can you wrap him up and take him home and put him on a grill? Can you stop him if he's running at you? If you don't have a gun, can you do anything at all to him? What is he good for? He sits around in the water and bites you or eats you if you swim. Sometimes he swims, eats some of the fishes too, but uh, unless there's too many of them, it doesn't hurt your ability to have fish. What good is a hippo? But God made it. And God made good things. You can't explain why or what. Sometimes you try. I mean, you can explain it physically. We can explain it bio, bio, biologically. But we can't tell why he's there. How about Leviathan? The best commentators think Leviathan is a crocodile. Uh, an alligator, if you want to be in this country. Uh, I suppose I can use that. What good is an alligator? Okay, you want to make shoes or a belt or a purse? We can do that. What good is an alligator? What does he do for the ecology? What does he do for the things that look good? He scares us away from the rivers, chases us away from the fish, chases us away from the beaches. Maybe I could think of some things that you could do with a crocodile. I personally prefer to use a snake here. What good is a snake? You can't pet him. Try to pet him, he'll break your arm. Or bite you. What good is he? Scare you to death in your house. Take your life if he bites you. What good is a snake? But God made him. And he made him for a purpose. What purpose? How come God did these things? How come God did these things? We don't know. We don't know the way. All we know is that He did. So, what does God have in mind if we can't figure out what it is? Is it possible that God isn't like us? 
Is it possible that God does things because he wants to be an, to make an example of them? Is it possible that God wants to make an example of us? Well, yeah, of course it is. If you're drunk driving, you wreck the car, you'll be an example. You do that kind of thing, you bad things happen. What happens if you aren't the one who's guilty of that accident? And you're the one who's in the hospital. What's God doing? What did Job say at the first? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What did he say at the second? Shall we accept good from God's hand and not evil also? What's going on? What God is doing is he's making an example out of Job. An example. Out of crocodiles, out of hippos, out of stars, out of suns. We read it in Romans five, Romans 8. All things must work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called. And then we make a mistake here. Those who are the called according to God's purpose. We don't pause in there. Before according to the call. Before according to God's purpose. All things must work together for for good to those who are called according to God's purpose. Not necessarily yours. You may want to accomplish great things with something. God doesn't want you to. Not sin. You're just trying to do something and God says, that's not what I'm going to have happen. And so what do you do about it? And how you deal with it becomes the example. Pastor Grasbitt made a mistake. Well, not a mistake. One of the things we sometimes call a mistake. He mentioned in a, in a prayer before a sermon that we had been a whole year with no deaths in the congregation. And usually we've had three, he said. In the next two weeks we had four. What was God doing? God was making an example of those four, among other things perhaps, how you deal with what God does. If God lets your car get wrecked and you're in the hospital and here you are and you're in pain in the hospital and you say, oh, what a terrible thing. Why did God do this to me? Have you not said that God has to do good things to good people and I'm a good people and therefore God's at fault for doing something bad to me? What happens if you're lying there in bed and you're on the tubes and somebody says to you, oh, 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 isn't it just awful what's happened to you? Isn't it just terrible? Are you, are, are you really upset about this? And you say, no. God means it to me for good. And they look at you and say, how can you say that? And your answer is because I trust God and I know that he's doing good things to me. And he's going to use me as an example. And he might even use what he's, my reaction to what he's doing to me to make you say, well, if God can do that to him, maybe he can do it to me. I mean, you know how to preach the gospel. You can read the Bible to people. You can pray for them. Do, they, do you ever realize that they watch you? He's a Christian. He's, don't get him mad. He's a Christian. You're getting mad. Listen to the vocabulary that comes out. They watch you. 
They have standards that are higher for you than you have for yourself. Please. They've done it to me for years. And I deserve it. What happens? What happens when somebody says, how did God do this to you? Or why did God do this to you? One of my favorite examples is that I was preaching in the first place where I was a summer intern. And one of the guys in the church who had known me as a teenager growing up had been going to French Creek Bible Conference with me for years. Uh, uh, he came, he was part of the church. And he brought a girl who was part of the church too, who was from a different congregation. And she'd been going to the camps and she knew me for years too. And he shook my hand and he said, Jay, this is Carol. And we both looked at each other and we knew each other. And she took my hand and with a dazed look on her face, she said, You're in seminary? How did God do this? He does strange things to strange people. If God can change Jay, who can he change? So Jay became an example when Jay wasn't even aware that it was happening to be an example. I knew I'd been converted. I knew he was preparing me to go to, to the, go into the ministry. I thought I was going to have a long time to do it yet, but I knew he was going to do it. I didn't know how. And that was one reason, one way. So what happens to you when someone you love dies? Do you weep for days and weeks and months? Not because you miss them, but because your life is all upset now. Or do you say, Lord, you did this. You did it for good reasons. You did it out of mercy. You did it so that my example would be seen by others and they would say, if God can make them reconcile to the death of someone they love, maybe he can do it to me too.